Well, please do be seated. And do turn back in your Bibles to Exodus 34 as we continue in our series in Exodus uh, this evening. And there is an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to take notes as we work through. Uh, Let me pray as we begin. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to sit now as your people and listen to your words. And so we pray that your word would be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our chief desire. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Moody Teenager Syndrome. Moody Teenager Syndrome. I was guilty of that more than I should have been in my teenage years. I couldn't have asked for better parents, personally, and sometimes... As a grumpy teenage boy, I really pushed it too far with them. One evening, my mum had very kindly offered me a a lift to the train station because I was still too young to drive. I wanted to go over to my friends who lived in another town, and she didn't want me to walk. It was a cold winter's night in the UK. Didn't want to catch cold. Uh, But on our way in the car, she noticed I hadn't taken a coat, and she knew I'd be getting out of the car and getting off at the station, so she mentioned it. Uh, She was worried I would catch cold, and I just snapped at her in a terrible mood. I said, I'm fine, Mum. Leave me alone. Just get me to the station. So she decided to teach her moody son a lesson. She pulled up on the side of the road there and then and said, all right, then, you can walk from here. And I trudged into town to find a payphone and call her and say, I'm not coming home tonight, Mum. Our relationship was really stretched that evening. I did go home that evening in the end to my mum's relief, but I knew in my heart that I had really let her down. Uh, Being a wonderful mum that she is, she didn't hold it against me for very long, but I was worried had I pushed it too far this time. So we come to Exodus this evening, Exodus 33 and 34. Uh, We see Moses' concerns that Israel, God's people, have pushed it too far with God. Uh, Having been saved from bitter slavery in Egypt, redeemed by God's right hand, uh, Israel at Mount Sinai had sworn, yes, we will love you and honor you and serve you as our God, as the one who has redeemed us. But as soon as Moses had gone up the mountain to receive the law by which God's people would live, as soon as he was out of their sight, they had turned away and built the golden calf and said, this is the God who delivered us out of slavery. Uh, Israel committed adultery against the Lord. They cheated on him in no time at all. And Moses knew, given what the people had done, that God had every right to just send them away, and they would miss out on his blessing. And so having interceded for Israel, Moses asks the Lord here for reassurance that he is still with his people, that they have not pushed things too far. We read, if you look in Exodus 33, 15, Moses pleads with the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Moses is desperate for reassurance that God is still for them. And here, God in his grace grants Moses the reassurance he needs as he reveals something of his grace 
as he renews his promises and as he reaffirms his presence with them. Let's start with that first one, God revealing his grace. Moses asks in these verses to see God's glory. Lord, show me something of your greatness, what makes you so great. And so the Lord briefly passes by Moses, but Moses cannot see his face. There is much more emphasis on what Moses hears from the Lord rather than what he sees of the Lord. And so we read in verse 5, what does Moses hear? The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This would have been such a comfort for Moses in this situation. God telling him, I am not just a God of justice, but I am a God of great mercy. In fact, what makes me so great as God is the fact that my mercy triumphs over my justice. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But just in case Moses and the people get the wrong idea that God doesn't really care about sin, well, he makes it clear here, he will not entertain those who persistently rebel against him as their creator and their Lord. So we read in verse 7, but, by whom, by, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the children and the children's children. God makes it clear he will condemn the guilty who stubbornly and persistently rage against him in sin. Both the father here, we're told, and his family who follow in his pattern of stubborn, stubborn sin. The, fa the father is like a captain. Where he steers, the whole ship, the whole family will follow. And so as the children follow the father in his stubborn pattern of sin, well, so God's judgment continues for the next few generations. For us as parents who love our children, this is one of the most sobering texts in all of Scripture. The more we let sin get the upper hand in our lives as parents, the more our own children could well suffer for it if they follow in our example. We're to be promoting them continually in the love and knowledge of the Lord and modeling that in our daily lives before our own flesh and blood. Now, we can be more shocked about this verse, speaking of God's just judgment on the wicked, than the far more incredible words here, speaking of God's mercy, His grace, His undeserved favor. He shows steadfast love to thousands, many, many generations. God's mercy triumphing over His justice. That is the assurance God grants Moses here as He is fearful, given Israel's rebellion, have they blown it? No, God will not condemn all that sin against him. He will show merciful love to many who fear him. I wonder, is this the God that we know here at St. Mary's, a God who desires mercy over and against judgment, a God who is quick to forgive those who do repent? Are we quick to bear the merciful character of our Heavenly Father? as those who have been shown such great mercy by him, far more than Israel could even know here, in Christ and in his cross. 
Does that show in the way that we relate to one another as a church family? Do we call to mind the number of times God has forgiven us our sin before Him by nothing but the precious blood of His Son? And so are we quick to forgive one another when we sin against one another and repent before one another? Do we show ourselves a family in Christ in that way? Well, secondly, God reassures Moses he is still with his people by secondly renewing his promises. So we come to verse 11. And the Lord says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. God here is effectively reaffirming his promise he made beforehand to his people, I will be with you, I will take you into the land of my blessing, and I will secure you from your enemies who would otherwise destroy you. But we see here a renewed emphasis on one serious issue for God's people, the issue of idolatry. So verse 13, let me just scan down. Verse 13, You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. Verse 15, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. Verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. God God would still deliver his people into the land of his promise and deliver them from their enemies. But their future in the land of his blessing would depend on their faithfulness to him as Lord, which would mean no idols, no false worship. And to test Israel, God gives them some rituals that would prove if he really was first in their hearts where he belonged. And we're just going to focus on one of them tonight in verse 22. The Lord tells them, you shall observe the Feast of Weeks the first fruit of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at year's end. Three times in the year shall all your men appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. So Israel are told three times each year every man in the nation was to drop what he was doing and all of them would gather in one place to give thanks to God for his provision. And that would really show that Israel trusted and feared the Lord above all things. Because every man dropping everything he was doing at the same time, that meant every soldier would leave his post at the same time and come and meet in one place in the land. Every watchman standing on the towers would come down and meet in one place at one time. Israel, humanly speaking, would appear to be defenseless from their enemies surrounding them. And yet God promises them in verse 24, I will cast out nations before you, enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. It is an incredible test of faith. It would be like Donald Trump, the President of the United States, telling his generals to withdraw all the 23,000 United States troops from the border between North and South Korea, bring them all back at the same time, and just trust me, nothing will go wrong. This was really going to test Israel's faith in God as their God. Well, we as God's people today, we live still in a world full of idols. We may know some who still bow down to physical statues and altars, but for many of us, our battle with idolatry is far more subtle. It is a battle hidden 
deep in the heart. You listen to these perceptive words from the minister Tim Keller. He writes, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what only God can give to you. Anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. It could be family or children or career or making money or achievement or critical acclaim, saving face or social standing, secure and comfortable living, beauty, brains, even your success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, I'll know that I have value, I'll feel significant and secure. And when we make anything or anyone but God our chief affection in that way, well, friends, that is the golden calf that we worship. I remember one brother from the UK who was going through a very stressful time in his career, and he had got into the habit of just taking a shot of whiskey each night to calm his nerves. And over time, this habit began to take control of him. He noticed when he didn't get his shot of whiskey the night before, he would be very irritable the following day at work, very insecure, and only by taking the whiskey again each night could he calm down and feel in control. At that shot of whiskey, it was meant to serve him to calm his nerves, but in the end, he became a slave to it. It became his idol that he became dependent on, a security that could never deliver, of course, anything more than calm for a brief moment. Yet, friends, As those made in his image, God alone is our true Lord and our true security, no matter what we might face in this life. It is God alone who has promised he is working for the good of those who trust and fear him, and so fear his word and seek his will in their lives. It is God alone who has promised eternal security to all who would trust on his Son, so that not even in death, would we be separated from his love? I mean, maybe right now we know we're caught in the grip of some idol, a, a love of money that will not last, a love of power that will dwindle, a love of reputation before men that will ultimately come to nothing. But we feel right now we just can't live without those things. Well, if that is you, won't you do what my friend did and share that struggle with one whom you trust so that They can help you give your full affection back to God where it belongs, remembering He is our Lord of life who alone can provide the rest we were created for. That is what Israel are called to do, as God provides for their every need so that they might live in the blessing of His presence. And so we have this final assurance, God's presence reaffirmed. Now, when was the last time someone could tell something amazing had happened to you simply by the expression on your face? I remember the evening I asked my wife, Melissa, to marry me, and she said, yes, thank goodness. Uh, We wanted to share that good news with our friends and our family. And the first person that we could find outside of our family that night was the dean, Andrew, who lived just a few uh, stairs above uh, me at the time. And so as soon as we saw him, we realized we didn't actually need to say anything to him. We burst into his living room, beaming with joy, huge smiles on our faces, and Andrew knew straight away Tim and Melissa were going to get married. 
It could just be seen on our faces. As Moses comes down the mountain from God, his mere appearance, his expression, evokes a strong reaction from the people. Read with me from verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. You might remember, if you were with us weeks ago, how God revealed his glory initially at Mount Sinai as he spoke the Ten Commandments to his people in the thunder and the lightning, and they responded in a healthy, reverent fear. They were afraid. But then they had become complacent, and they exchanged worship of God for the worship of something more tangible in the golden calf. And yet now God, in his mercy, allows them to behold his glory again, and this time in a more tangible way, as they gaze on the face of Moses, uh, his chosen servant who spoke God's very words to the people. God shows them once again, it is in Moses. And it is as they listen to Moses and obey his words that their relationship with him will continue. Moses would speak, and they would be blessed as they listened and obeyed. But what an incredible assurance for Israel. God makes his presence known again in the face of his chosen servant. And tragically, Israel would not continue to enjoy God's presence in the stubbornness of their hearts, they refused to keep the Lord God gave them. They kept on turning aside to the idols of other nations. And so in the end, they were cast out of the land of God's good promise. God's covenant with them would not endure. In fact, we can even see that here. If you see in verse 33, we're told, And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a fail over his face. Even at this early stage, Moses knew to conceal his face that bore the very glory of God. The veil was only removed when Moses was speaking with God or speaking to the people, God's words. And we saw in our New Testament reading why in 2 Corinthians. Let me just read these words of the Apostle Paul. And he writes, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Uh, Paul tells us the reason Moses put a veil over his face, it wasn't to conceal God's glory from the people, but to conceal the fact that God's glory was fading from his face over time. It was only temporary. It pointed forward to something far more lasting and far more spectacular. The greater hope Paul speaks of here, God's glory, his mercy, his steadfast love revealed in another face. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, tonight our hope of knowing God, knowing his greatness, knowing his mercy, his steadfast love, it depends on Christ. It doesn't depend on trying to keep a set of rules that we refuse to like Israel did. I know I am no different from them. Left to my own devices, I will turn away to the idols of this world rather than honor God rightly and live by his word. Our hope 
is Jesus. God himself come to dwell with us, make God's greatness, his glory known to us, ultimately in the cross. That's where we see God's glory revealed, as God's justice against sin is shown, but also the fact that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and so his son willingly lays down his life that we might be forgiven our every transgression through faith in his blood. We might escape it on the basis of what he has done. That is the richness of God's mercy to us in Christ. As those who trust in him, we now receive his spirit, and with that a new heart in place of the old that will now long to know and love and fear God as we should. I wonder what assurance do we cling to now in those moments when we know we're only too aware we have not loved and honored God as we should, and we have instead worshiped lesser things. We've put our security in the idols that cannot deliver. What is your assurance that God will accept you back to enjoy his glory once again? Friends, every time you fall for an idol, look ten times to the cross where Christ died to pay for our every ounce of unfaithfulness in full. He alone is our assurance for forgiveness, for new life and the blessing of God's presence, and so trust on Him. And if we have done that, well, we are called like Israel now with Christ as Lord to love God as we should, to live day by day with Him as our ultimate security and our greatest joy, beholding His glory as we look to Jesus by this word that testifies to him, as we are reminded how his promises of eternal life are so much greater than the fleeting idols that this world would otherwise distract us with. To know, to trust, and obey Christ, it is to know freedom in the place of sin and misery. So rejoice in him, in the eternal security you know by his blood, and so offer up our lives to him as our wonderful Savior and risen King of God's glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed are a God who is slow to anger and who is abounding in steadfast love. And we thank you that we know that tonight above all in the face of your Son, our Lord Jesus who laid down his life that we might know your mercy and forgiveness and life with you again. So help us to trust on him as the Savior and King that you have granted to us. And so rejoice in him and look forward to life with you. In him we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.